Good morning. Merry Christmas. It's great to see everyone. You guys are looking great. Uh, you know that for basically all of human history, we've been counting time. Uh, it's kind of like a standard as being human. Um, so you've got to figure out what time of day it is, uh, what time of year it is. Um, the first, basically the first big, uh, I'm, a, I'm an expert in clocks. You're going to find that out in a minute. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm not, but I can use the internet. Um, the first big revolution in timekeeping uh, was around the year 1335. Uh, a mechanical clock was installed in a church in Milan, Italy. I tried to figure out, like, it'd be interesting to know, like, who made the clock, who installed the clock. It's very difficult to find. I don't know if there's any clock historians in the room, but uh, they basically, anything you read, they're like, we know very little details about this clock. We just know that around 1335, a mechanical clock was installed in a church. And this was uh, a technological, like, feat to be able to tell time with a mechanical clock. And humans were obsessed with, with time, so we, we, need, we need clocks. Uh, the mechanical clock's interesting. The fact that it was in a church, uh, it was a sign of, like, high wealth, prestige, technological advancement. The church during that time had uh, probably too much power, to be honest with you. Um, that's not a, if you know history, you know they had way too much power. Um, so uh, the clock was in the church, um, and clocks really time, for that matter, uh, they do control everything about our lives. Uh, it is the one thing that is a constant uh, in a world where everything seems to be changing. Uh, time is that one thing that always just leaves. Like, you, like you, you never have enough time. Like our world, some of us, like our worlds revolve around time so much. And there's some people in the room that are absolutely, you're obsessed with time, like time management, uh, timekeeping. Uh, if you're like me, you'll download as many time management apps as you can uh, just to figure out, like, they're cool, you know, they're fun. But some people are just absolutely obsessed showing up on time. Uh, there's two types of people in the world, those who show up on time and those who don't even understand that things start at a certain time. There's really no in-between. It's like you're either chronically early or you really do not care about other people's time. Uh, so... I am one of the chronically early people. I will show up. I'll come to your party an hour early. It's like Michael Scott. It's bad. Um, I will do everything I can to get there on early. And I get a, like an attitude at home because like, I'm like one of the only people in my house that has this issue. Um, everybody else will be 10 minutes before we're supposed to be somewhere. And it's like, we're still getting ready. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to the car. And I'll literally just go sit in the car because I'm passive aggressive as well. So I'll go sit in the car and it's, it's great. It doesn't cause any arguments at all. Everybody's happy in my house. Um, but if you're obsessed with time, and we should be more obsessed, maybe, but like you'll ask questions like, am I taking enough time off? You know what I mean? Like you'll, you'll, and right now, is no one cares about their like, employee handbook or their like, time off policies until you realize you haven't taken enough vacation. So you have to do like, can I cash out my vacation? Does my vacation roll over? You realize you haven't taken enough time. But even when you go on vacation, you're still taking time. Like time is like the one resource that you never get back. Like, people write books about, like, stealing time. And it's like, yeah, you're stealing time, but you're still spending the time. If you want to get really depressing, like, when we woke up this morning, that was, like, one less day that we're waking up. Like, time is going. And it actually goes way faster than we want it to. And so you start asking yourself existential questions. Like, is my time going to the right place? 
Like, am I spending my time the way I want to spend my time? At around 9.15 this morning, if your uh, iPhone notifications are on, you probably got your screen time notifications sent to you. And you realize how much time you're wasting looking at your phone. Like, we waste time, we spend time, we try to find time. We will read books on what's the most, like, what's the best time to wake up? Like, what's, when should I be going to bed? How many hours of sleep do I need? Do you realize that we are spending about a third of our lives sleeping. Like a third of our lives are basically in like a natural comatose state. And that is an odd thing. We're wasting a lot of time sleeping. Like we can't get that time back. Anyway, uh, it keeps going. You can ask questions like when does my workday start? And if you're one of the people who doesn't show up early to anything, like when should it start? Like what time should you get there? Time has a funny way of speeding us up and simultaneously making us wait. Like time is that thing that's always making you wait for something, hurry to something. It is always moving. When does this thing start? Is this thing going to end? You got here this morning and you're like, okay, it's supposed to start at nine. And at like 9.02, there's still a countdown on. Now, what's the point of the countdown if it's not going to start at 9? Like, what is going on at this place? And then what time are we going to get out? Like, do they understand that, like, we've got things going on today? And, like, if you're anxious about time, you'll start tapping your foot around, like, I don't know, 12. And you'll be wondering, what is going on? Like, how long are we going to be spending here? Uh, you're, we wait for someone to arrive. We wait for something to come. Everything about our lives revolves around time. And it always makes us wait. Time is always there. Now, for the Jewish community, especially during biblical times, everything about that faith was centered around waiting for the Messiah. Everything about the Jewish faith is centered around waiting for the Messiah. You see, time and waiting, they constantly live in this tension. And what's so amazing is that the, the same world where God created sunup, and sundown. He, he also created the longing in the human heart for the coming Messiah. This is just, a, you might be in here today and you don't believe a word that we say about church. You came with your parents and you're like, I'll just go finally. That's cool. Like, that's fine. We hope you enjoy it. We just want you to know that we believe here that even if you don't want to believe it, in your soul, there is a longing for the Messiah that is to come. It, it's an innate feature of human is that we are longing for the Messiah. And so uh, for the Jewish people, if you read the Old Testament, everything that happens is centered around the Messiah coming. Every prophet that comes, you'll read prophecies of the coming Messiah. Everything was waiting with bated breath for the Messiah. And now when we get to the New Testament, the first one they put in there is Matthew. Matthew's a guy who wrote an account of Jesus' life, and he starts off his Christmas story not with, like, the way Luke did it. Luke was so, it's the one that got really famous. It's like, you know, the shepherds, they watch by night. It's amazing. The angels come down the North Star. It's amazing. Okay, all that's great. The way Matthew starts it is wild, because if you were to introduce in the Jewish culture at this time any, uh, any person of value, any person, you want to know their pedigree. Like, where did this person come from? What's their stock? Do they come from good stock? Should I be listening to this person? Should I be following this person? If they're supposed to be a king, like their lineage would be amazing. They call this the royal, it's like the royal lineage. And so when Matthew starts off his gospel, he gives us the royal lineage of Jesus. 
Another way to say it, it's the genealogy of Jesus. This was before Ancestry.com. They didn't have that. Uh, some of us, we can't go back more than three grandparents, okay? What I'm about to read to you is wild, okay? There's a lot of names. My son was here last service, and he said, can you please skip the names? I was like, if I skip the names, that's the whole thing. I was like, so I can't skip the names because there's a lot of them, okay? So buckle up, okay? 90% of them would be horrible names to name your kids, okay? There's a few in there that you're like, huh, I can jive with that. Uh, for the most part, wild names, okay? You're going to hear them, and you're going to try to write them down maybe, and you won't be able to, okay? But it's in the first chapter of Matthew, like the first verse, okay? So you don't have to go very far if you want to read it. Um, but I'm going to read it, and then we're going we're gonna to keep going. This is how Matthew introduces Jesus. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham, he was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, he was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. You got to remember Tamar? Crazy story. We're going to get back to that. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron, Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, uh, Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother, Boaz's mom, was Rahab. Going to remember that one too? Wild, okay? We're going to get back to it. Boaz, he was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David, everyone's favorite, man of God's own heart, has a crazy story. Uh, we'll get into it. Uh, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Her name is Bathsheba. Uh, Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Uh, he was a terrible person. Rehoboam, the father of uh, Abijah. Abijah, the father of uh, Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, Jeroham. Are we good? Are we still, we're still tracking, right? Weird names. A lot going on here, okay? This is good, okay? Um, let's see. I'm on uh, Je Jehoram, I think is his name. Uh, his, he was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, Jotham. Jotham, Ahaz. Ahaz, Hezekiah. Hezekiah, Manasseh. Manasseh's crazy. We're going to mention him later. Uh, Manasseh, the father of Amen. Amen, the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jeconiah, his brothers and his brothers. That was the time of the uh, Babylonian exile. So then after the exile to Babylon, uh, Jeconiah was the father of uh, Shealtiel. Again, not a great name, but this next one we should bring back because Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and that would just be awesome. Okay, there's not many of those, um, but I think it'd be cool. Uh, Zerubbabel, uh, Abahud, Abahud, Eliakim, Eliakim, Azor, Azor, Zadok, Zadok, Achim, Achim, uh, Elihud, Elihud, Eleazar, Eleazar, Mathen, Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Now that took like a few minutes to read, right? Here's what's crazy. That took a few minutes, but that's approximately 2,000 years covering the genealogy of Jesus. That, that, they say that's, it's 42 generations a family leading up to Jesus. That, my friends, is a very long time. In fact, the way Matthew breaks that up, which you can look into, it's three stages. It's the entire history of Israel in that genealogy. Every major event that happened in Old Testament Israel is a part of Jesus's lineage. And the one common thread, because we're going to go through some of this stuff and it's wild, the one common thread all throughout this genealogy is God's plan to bring humanity back into right relationship with him, okay? Now, what's so wild about this, because it's 42 generations, it's thousands of years, okay? What you need to know is all of, almost all of those people would have been highly aware 
that God has a plan to, to rescue the world. Almost all of them would have known that the Messiah is coming. I don't think any of them, outside of maybe like Abraham, would have known that they were going to be in the lineage of Jesus. Most of these people weren't living their everyday lives trying to orchestrate this moment where they get put in the, in the letter that Matthew writes about the story of Jesus and realize, like, Hezekiah is in. Like, he's, he's not sitting there like, I'm doing this because one day they're going to write about me and I just need to set this thing up. No, they were just living their everyday lives, doing the best they could with the cards they'd been dealt. And many of them were dealt really terrible cards. Now, we read these people, and it's like, wow, they're listed with Jesus. This is amazing. Their lives were horribly difficult, more often than not. And none of them were trying their hardest to get into this list. God just orchestrated it this way, because through all of it, there was a tension between time. Because they all would have known the Messiah is coming. But the longer it took, the more hope would be stripped. There's always hope there, but eventually the hope is going to turn into brokenness. Eventually, brokenness becomes a hallmark of what humanity has to deal with. And what's wild is that God specializes in brokenness. God, he orchestrates history in such a way that he is so kind to broken people. Here's what we have right in the beginning. The first woman that you hear, now first of all, the fact that there's a woman listed in a royal lineage is wild because when Matthew wrote this, women were literally property. If they weren't married to a man, they had absolutely no say in anything. If they weren't married, they had nothing. They couldn't own anything. They had no rights. They had no privileges outside of the man they were married to. You would never see a woman show up in a genealogy. It shows you that right from the jump, Jesus is set up to revolutionize the way that the world views women. But anyway, the first woman that we see, her name is Tamar. Now, Tamar, she's basically the way this goes is she's, she's decently upset that she's not a mom yet. She wants, she wants to get pregnant. She wants, so this is what she does, okay? Uh, she pretends, she disguises herself as a prostitute so that, uh, so that I think it's Judah... Oh, uh, she could trick Judah into fathering her children, okay? Now, it's a wild story. Now, she didn't do this in some effort to be in the genealogy of Jesus. She was trying to solve what she felt like was a problem that she had. And so she did something that was highly questionable in order to have kids, okay? But God was kind in the midst of a broken situation. The next person, Rahab. If we want to continue the trend of brokenness. Now Rahab, Rahab was not disguised as a prostitute. Rahab was legitimately a prostitute. Now when you read this, in the history of Israel, they did not look at this lifestyle as a righteous thing. It was, this was not like, like, oh my gosh, get a girl, do what you do, you know? That was not it. Like, no, no, no. This was like, this was like a bad thing to do. And she, she, she found herself in a God-ordained moment, and she answered and little did she know, outside of her realm of understanding, that God would be so kind to orchestrate her brokenness so that today you read her name as part of the lineage of Jesus. In a world where it felt like actually hope is being robbed from you on a daily basis, God is saying, no, no, no I'm actually going to be kind to her brokenness. I'm going to use this destructive story as a way to bring out my ultimate plan for the redemption of the world. That is absolutely amazing. It goes even further. David. 
David is considered the greatest king Israel ever had. He's a, he's a man after God's own heart. David had some issues, okay? We love the David and Goliath story. It's amazing. He kills the giant. David becomes king. He gets so arrogant that when they're at war, he's supposed to go. Like, that's what the king does. He goes and fights. He stays back. Maybe he's getting a little lazy. Maybe he's getting a little tired. He sees Bathsheba. She's uh, bathing where, she, where you would normally bathe. They had their baths on the roof, apparently. Interesting model for a home. I don't know. It's odd. Uh, but he sees her, and he's like, I want to be with that woman. So he gets her back to his palace. She's married. He sleeps with her. She falls pregnant. Now David's terrified because now he's got this woman pregnant. He calls her husband uh, back, which this is what it says in the genealogy. It's she was the mother. He was the mother of Uriah's uh, wife. Uriah's wife, Uriah was in battle. David calls him back. David has the man murdered uh, ultimately to try to cover up the whole thing. The whole thing is an absolute tragic mess. But God was kind to the brokenness. It's absolutely incredible. It goes even further. Manasseh. Manasseh, the only thing I'll say about him, he was so great. Manasseh was, was involved in child sacrifices, okay? This is quite the family history. You think your family has problems? You think your background has some stuff? You think you're caring, like, oh, I'm just, this is just the way that I am. My mom was this way. My mom's mom. My dad was this way. I'm just, this is just who I am. I'm Italian, so I'm a little angry. Like, no, no, like, you think you've got it bad? Like, this is a broken system that Jesus has found himself in. But what's amazing is that God was happy to surround himself with broken people. He was happy to surround himself with a broken history. So maybe you're here and you've allowed yourself to believe the lie that you are too broken for God to rescue you. Maybe you find yourself in a situation where you feel like, I'm too far gone, like God cannot possibly understand my brokenness. No, God is well acquainted with your brokenness. He actually specializes in damaged goods. It's what makes him so great. And the second thing is that his timing is perfect. And what's so wild is that if time is up to you and I, it happened yesterday. Like you got it yesterday. Whatever you need right now, it obviously happened eight hours ago. Like in your mind, it's never the right time. Timing is never perfect, but God's timing is always perfect. Before Jesus came, want to know how jacked up this is? Before Jesus came, you can read the Old Testament, and if you flip the page, it goes to the New Testament. What they don't tell you is that between that book and the next book is 400 years of almost absolute silence. 400 years. That is a long time. There was very little prophets. There was very little talks to the Messiah. During that time, the Roman government took over everything. Their systems were incredible. During that time, the church went so far beyond what the church was supposed to be. This is when uh, the groups like the Pharisees came about. Groups like the Sadducees came about. There was very little leadership. It was utter hopelessness. If you were a Jewish person, the, person, the oppression was so severe that it, it was dangerous. It was legitimately insane. But it was the perfect time for God to bring Jesus. So you have these people who are stuck in the in-between, wondering, when is this thing going to happen? Those stories that grandma's grandpa used to tell us, is it ever going to happen? The amount of people that lived and died without seeing the Messiah is so insane, yet they still had hope. 
maybe some of them deep down understood that God's timing is perfect. He saw the political climate of the day. He saw the way the church was set up. And God said, you know what? Right there is where my son can have the greatest impact to spread the good news to the world. During a time where the, the, the political strategy of the Romans was so vast that it was so easy to transport messages. It, like it's, it is insane how perfect the timing is. Now you have to ask yourself the question, are you finding yourself in an in-between? You're not where you once were. You know you're not where you want to be. It feels silent. It feels hopeless. It feels dark. It feels like, oh my gosh, is God ever going to come through? What you need to understand is that God's timing is always perfect. And what's crazy about this is as dark and hopeless as it might seem at times, God's richest promise is already here. What's so wild about this is that the promise of the Messiah is already here. You and I right now, we have the richest promise. It's, it's the hope of all hope. It's literally the peace of all peace. What's so wild to me is that in God's perfect timing, he didn't come with a bunch of pomp and circumstance. Like he, he didn't make a lot of noise when he came. It's almost as if he was saying like, in the midst of a wildly broken world, I'm just going to show up with just a glimmer of hope. I'm going to show up to the lowliest of low people and I'm going to tell them first about the hope that can be found. You and I right now are living in basically the extension of that moment. You and I are living in the moment of hope is already here. Like Emmanuel, God with us, is already here. And to take it a step further, he's here and he is actually with you. And you can keep him at an arm's length all you want. But I want you to know that there is a God in heaven. He's not only here, he actually wants to be with you. There's nothing you can do. There's not as, you cannot be as bad as, as would, would block him from your soul. There's a God in heaven who is so acquainted with pain that he actually welcomes it in. It says the scripture calls him a safe refuge. They call him a strong tower. They actually call him a good hiding place. It's a God who actually wants to tuck you in in the midst of your pain and brokenness. This is a God who comes when you least expect it and in ways that maybe you don't really want him to. Maybe you want him to come down from the clouds and speak to you in an audible voice and say, it's me, I'm here, move over, let me take over. But I love what Paul says, or uh, what David writes. Hold on, let me like this. Because scripture never really gives us this idea that because of Christmas, because of hope coming, we'll never have to face anything again. It doesn't do that. See, what, what's wild is that when David was thinking about it, he would say things like, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, if it's you and I in our most stressed out situations. We would probably finish it with like, I'm going to die. Like, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm dead now. Okay, this is like, this is too much for me. It's amazing what David wrote and what he found was actually a hopeless situation. 
He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. He says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You actually prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup, it actually overflows. David was in a cave running for his life. It was not filled with hope, but he understood the eternal principle that there's a God who is with you. So I don't know what you face today, and we can lower the lights so that we can start doing the candles. But I want you to know that maybe 2023 was a decently tragic year. Maybe when you think about all the stuff that you had to, you had to go through, there might have been moments in your year where you didn't actually know if you were going to physically make it. You thought this might be it. For some, it, was, it could have been scary. It could have been confusing. Maybe you lost relationships. Maybe as time wore on and the ticking clock of time carried, you realized, I am losing hope every single day. Maybe you've gotten to this point. And you're like, man, if 2024 is like this, I don't know what I'm, I don't know how I'm going to make it. If there's anything I can tell you today, it's that God, God is with you. And sometimes it might just look like this. Sometimes it's just a glimmer of hope, but it's actually a hope you can anchor yourself to. So tonight I'm going to light one candle. As you look at this candle this morning, I want you to think through the different times of your year where maybe it felt hopeless. Maybe over the next few months, you know you've got some stuff that needs to be dealt with. Let this candle remind you today that when Jesus came, it was a thrill of hope to a weary world. God is well acquainted with our pain. He's well acquainted with our suffering. And he actually wants to be there with you in it. He is Emmanuel, God with us. So as we sing Silent Night together, I want you to think on those things. Jesus, we thank you that you are with us. We thank you that you are for us. God, we thank you that your hope is secure. In Jesus' name.
Father, we thank you that your plan from the very beginning was to send your only son vulnerable into this world to take on our sins and restore our relationship with you. Thank you that a single light can never be snuffed out by the darkness, but light will always permeate dark places. Father, we pray for every person in the room and online. God, we thank you that you know their name, that you knit them in their mother's womb. Jesus, that you gave your life for them to know you and be restored to the Father. So as we remember and celebrate the birth of your son, Jesus, we are reminded that we are not a people lost without a savior, but you, Emmanuel, are here. We pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.